This podcast contains instances and details of abuse, death, genocide, and trauma. Please take care of yourself and one another. This is the Boarding School Oral History Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Balafko. Today, I am joined by Dr. Eric Anderson, Citizen Band Potawatomi, who currently teaches at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. How are you today? Doing great. Thank you. Appreciate you inviting me to talk with you. Of course. Um, so first of all, for our audience, can you tell us what your current position at Haskell Indian Nations University is and what subjects do you currently teach there? Yeah, so I'm a chair of our Indigenous and American Indian Studies program here at Haskell. And um, my background is in American history. Uh, so whatever I'm teaching definitely has that component to it. Uh, I teach some of our um, kind of foundation or survey courses uh, on history of American Indian tribes and um, what we call American Indian issues, which is both a historical and contemporary look across Indian country. Um, I also um, currently overseeing um, our internship program, uh, which is a required component of, of um, IAIS. That's always hard to say. Um, so that's a service learning um, requirement that um, we have for our students. And uh, in addition to that, um, I'm teaching uh, our introduction to research methods, uh, as well as the uh, American Indian Studies uh, senior capstone. And, and I've also um, uh, have recently developed um, and will be teaching again a class on uh, boarding schools, as well as American Indians in Kansas. Those are all great courses and um, very great programs that they have at Cap, uh, Haskell. Um, it's great also to see a lot of collaboration between the Indigenous Studies program at KU um, with Haskell students as well. So um, very, very cool. So how did the American Indian boarding school system begin? Um, I know this is your primary, uh, primary research focus. Um, yeah. And who were the major proponents of the boarding schools? Well, it's a complicated and complex question. Um, I, I, I generally say that you know, there was a, um, a push, an impulse maybe, to change uh, Native people um, from the time that um, newcomers arrived, uh, whether that be in terms of uh, religious conversion agenda, uh, uh, assimilation uh, that would, um, I guess you could rightly say, improve the prospects um, economically, particularly of um, those newcomers. Um, the religious conversion agenda very quickly, I, I think we could say, particularly in the, um, the English colonies, but elsewhere, um, too, um, did morph into kind of a school system, uh, fledgling at first, but um, by the 19th century, uh, you have a whole lot of um, missionaries who are operating schools that are predicated on changing, uh, assimilating American Indian uh, and later Alaska Native youth. Um, proponents, I would say, um, began, you know, the, the, the impulse began um, in the denominational um, Christian groups. Um, but by the mid 19th century, I think there was a real motivation to change the direction of Indian policy, at least up to a, a certain point. And what I mean by that is you have folks who um, see themselves as very progressive. They probably wouldn't have used that word, but um, humanitarian, uh, self-styled um, friends of the Indian. That's what they called themselves, um, who were pushing at first at the margins, um, kind of the Jeffersonian um, viewpoint of assimilation and eventual citizenship, rather than continuing down the path of destruction and warfare. And um, after the Civil War, uh, with all the carnage and bloodshed, um, 
I think that really grew more into the center of a lot of political thinking. Not everybody, of course, but this is where we get Richard Henry Pratt and the Carlisle School, which becomes really the model for the off-reservation uh, boarding schools. Uh, and very soon after that, um, there's a federal um, system of schools that's put into place. And Haskell is one of the earliest examples of that. Mm -hmm. And who were the first students at the United States Indian Industrial School, later at the Haskell Institute? Mm -hmm. Where did they come from? Yeah, so Haskell opened in 1884, just five years after the um, opening of Carlisle. It's very modeled on um, Carlisle in many ways, and we can probably talk about that some more. But um, in, in that fall of 84, um, 22 students came to Haskell, and the majority of them were Pawnees and Cheyennes uh, who came up north from the Chilaco School, which was another one of these schools you know, predicated on the Carlisle standard and um, had opened a couple of years earlier. So they, they kind of um, took from the student body there to begin uh, the population of students uh, at Haskell. Um, and you mentioned the Carlisle standard. What what was the standard? Well, you know, Pratt was a, a military guy. So the institutions themselves had a very military um, regimen to them. Um, he, of course, was very centered on changing um, Indians in every way possible um, from outward appearance, you know, taking away the um, the trappings, the the regalia, the uh, traditional clothing items that students most probably arrived with, replacing those with, you know, school uniforms, standards of dress that were um, in line with the uh, Western styles of the time, um, changing of student appearance through things like haircuts but also getting more out of fundamental change of identity by um, dictating that only English could be spoken, um, traditional tribal religions or spiritual beliefs would be um, not tolerated, uh, and even changing students' names. So going to the, um, the very heart of, of identity, um, that assimilation programs being put into place, both in physical and um, you know, mental uh, terms. Can you describe some of the early experiences of students at Haskell and Carlisle? Well, um, I think for many of them, it would have been quite shocking. Um, and for their parents, too. You know, the whole list of reasons for how students get to the schools. But once they are there, um, you know, th this is a very foreign place. Um, many of them don't speak English very well, um, and they're sometimes being punished for doing so, um, corporal punishment. Um, they are in a very institutional environment, of course, uh, away from their families, away from home, away from all the things that would be familiar to them, um, and not really having, um, you know, any sense of being nurtured as they would have gotten at home. Um, you know, going back to thinking about those very first students, um, Pawnees and Cheyennes were traditional enemies. Um, you know, in the 1880s, we're, we're talking, you know, fewer than 10 years since the, the Battle of Little Bighorn, you know, so Plains warfare is very recent uh, in the memory of the students, certainly of their parents and, and grandparents. Um, so I think that could be a, a, a definite culture shock. You know, here we are um, together in this place um, as people who have, you know, longstanding enmity between each other. So I think there's a range of uh, experiences. Of course, the, the demand on the student's time um, in a very military atmosphere where they're being uh, summoned um, first thing in the morning by the sound of revelry and 
um, expected to uh, kind of um, move by clock time, which also is uh, foreign uh, to traditional um, Native people. Um, their whole day is very ordered so that they're spending about, you know, um, apart from meals, um, you know, they're spending about half the day in classrooms with a very, what we would call now rudimentary education, uh, and the other half um, in some, um, doing some sort of work, doing um, some sort of manual labor. And in the early days, a lot of that was simply geared towards, um, you know, upkeep and maintenance of the school itself. Um, as time goes on, there's development of some more, I guess, what you would call, you know, salable trades. Um, but the, the biggest workforce at Haskell would have been the farm and um, agriculture was not something that was practiced by um, all native tribes. Some of them did, um, others did not. Um, so I think there's a lot of um, the experience that would be very, um, let's say different to put it charitably, um, pretty foreign for most of them. Um, and what kind of classes were were offered? Sometimes I think calling it a, a boarding school takes away from what was actually going on, what was actually being taught. Absolutely, it does. It's a great point. Um, when we think of, or at least when I think of, um, outside of this context, the term boarding school, you know, that sounds like someplace nice that you would, you know, send your kids to on the East Coast or Switzerland or something like that, where it's very you know, elite and um, comfortable. Um, and on the one hand, from the perspective of the, the reformers, the Friends of the Indians, they did see the off-reservation boarding schools as elite because they thought they would offer the best chance to really um, break um, with tradition, you know, from the young generation and the, and the older ones. Um, but it's not a very comfortable place. You know, it's a place where there's a lot of loneliness and sadness and misunderstanding and um, you know, cultural um, I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but I mean, it, it's very foreign, you know and and I think it's um, a place where um, even within the confines of the education that's being offered, it's a very limited education. So students would be um, learning what um, was once called uh, the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, you know, probably some um, basic geography, um, the names of the states in the United States, the names of the presidents, national holidays, so a lot of it is very geared towards um, a larger trend taking place in America at the time, which is uh, Americanization. Um, and so Indians, the original inhabitants of this continent are, um, you know, in some ways being treated much like the immigrants who are arriving in great waves around the same time. Um, one fundamental difference being there's not a whole system school set up for those immigrants that are essentially isolating Native people or removing um, children from their from their homes from their families. Okay, can you describe the short term and long term effects of the military militarized boarding school system, as well as the changes of identity on children in attendance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know that's again um, there's so many mm -hmm. uh, things that we could include there. Um, short term, of course, you know, the homesickness and the, um, you know, depression probably of being separated from families. Um, short term, um, things like um, new experiences um, that aren't necessarily always bad because I, I want to be very clear that um, when we often hear stories from the boarding schools, they are negative and they come across as being ones that um, simply victimize um, these children and their families. And I want to be um, 
thorough and say, you know, we can't totally take away their agency because um, if we do that, uh, we, we're, we're missing part of the picture. So new experiences um, were included in the short term as well, meeting new people, learning new things, um, making friends, perhaps, um, forming relationships. Um, but of course, on a daily basis, there are a lot of um, negative aspects as well. Um, like I mentioned, lack of um, nurturing, um, disease and death were very common uh, among students in the early days. Um, the um, learning is somewhat limited, as I mentioned. So um, if the ultimate outcome of this education for assimilation, or what I would term re-education, really, because we shouldn't assume Indians didn't have their own ways of educating their children. Of course, they did. Um, if the ultimate goal of this re-education was uh, a path to citizenship, then it looks like it's a pretty um, second-class kind of citizenship um, because the educational opportunities are very, very limited and the thinking is only that Indians are good with their hands and not with their minds. Um, I think short-term effects, you know, could include things like what would it um, have been like to be an Indian parent and come visit your children, which did happen, um, you know, not very often, but um, parents and elders and others did come on occasion. Um, what's it look like to them to see their students um, you know, marching across the quad in cadet battalion formation um, in essentially the surplus uniforms of um, the United States uh, Army, which, you know, up until um, not very long before this time would have been the enemy. Um, so those would be some short-term effects, and there are others, of course, but um, more long-term um Again, both negative and positive. I think the, the big ones are going to be things like intergenerational trauma as successive generations um, come through the school. Um, it could include, um, of course, things that we're dealing with today, even. Um, the assault on tribal languages that happened in these schools definitely had a deleterious effect. Almost all uh, tribal nations are dealing with um, language loss or trying to revitalize it. Um, the same could be said of um, the spiritual traditions and beliefs that ceremony also uh, took a big hit because what happens when you have, you know, eventually thousands of students going through the schools um, you know, for decades, um, there's if students are gone for three or five or eight or 10 years um, before they go home, they can no longer speak the languages. They're disconnected from their families. Um, you know, their own children are probably going to, um, you know, in many cases anyway, the schools as well, um, because that's how that parent was raised. That was what's familiar to them. So um, I think those things would be big long-term effects. Um, but even, for instance, something like diet, I think is a long-term effect uh, of the schools. Um, you know, the students are eating very institutional foods um, that um, are being um, purchased with the idea of um, the least amount of cost to the government, even though um, fresh fruits and vegetables and things like that are being grown on the farm. Um, a lot of that's being sold on the open market to go back into the coffers of the school. Um, so they're eating a lot of, you know, starches and sugars and um, things that are certainly not part of the traditional diet. Uh, and it, it, I think, also has this effect of... Um, that resonates in some of the health challenges that exist across Indian country uh, with obesity and diabetes and things like that, that are long-term effects of, um, you know, breaking with the traditional diets of those um, students. 
And through all these conditions that they were subjected to, how were they, how were these students maintaining a level of agency? Yeah, so that's something I've particularly tried to um, get a handle on. And, and I think it is there very much. Um, it's limited, but it's there. Um, when we think about how the children get to school, yes, we hear stories about um, kids being rounded up um, by tribal police um, and shipped off to school. Um, we also understand that economic conditions were such uh, on the reservations, and there were these are really desperate places at the time that parents may have felt um, they didn't have a lot of choice. Um, there are unscrupulous agents, you know, who withhold rations and things like that until recalcitrant parents um, give in and send children. Um, you know, we, we've heard those things, but we also have to remember that um, in some cases, it's much more voluntary. And um, for some of the same reasons, um, there's not a lot of social mobility afforded on the reservations. They're essentially prisons in the 19th century. You know, Indians are not citizens. They don't have the same rights as citizens. They're wards of the United States government. So this opportunity to go somewhere and learn something and perhaps come back uh, with a trade, um, you know, could be pretty attractive. Um, the prospect of leaving home and being separated from family, not as much, obviously, but there is in the tribal way of living always the thought that you live for the group, not for the individual. And so students are maintaining agency in terms of making these sacrifices so that they can do things that will improve a lot of those back home. Now, of course, those friends of the Indians, those reformers, um, you know, they didn't want the kids to go back home. They assumed they would go through the school and then they would just kind of, you know, be fanned out into the general um, population, the dominant society, um, and they would never look back. But um, that, that's not the truth. Um, students maintain agency um, through um, their very attendance um, and therefore families have some agency as well. If um, you know, there's a superintendent at the school um, who has a reputation for being very heavy handed or cruel, um, you know, that word gets around and parents back home are you know, more inclined to do whatever it takes to keep their children home. Um, for those who are already at the schools and don't have much opportunity to leave them, um, they can exert agency through resistance. And that's in all kinds of different ways. Ones that maybe are sort of passive, like um, breaking a quick farm equipment, you know, work slowdowns. Um, it can be through more um, visible, I guess, means or um, by doing things like openly resisting authority, um, maybe setting fires, um, refusing to go to class, um, and certainly um, the most visible way would be leaving the schools. Um, there's a lot of quiet resistance that's happening outside of the prying eyes of administration, like maybe students getting together um, in the evenings and sneaking away from the school and practicing traditional dances or ceremonies, speaking their languages, maybe even preparing foods in ways that, um, you know, were more familiar and therefore more comforting to them. But the ultimate act of defiance would be picking up and leaving, you know, going back home. Um, this has long been termed running away in parlance of, of, American Indian education studies, I guess, but that too is a bit of a misnomer. Um, you know, it, it would be, I think, more, um, you know, when you think of running away, some people make the criticism that 
you run away from home and the schools were not home, but it's not entirely inaccurate because it's almost like a, you know, an escape from prison. Um, these are very, um, what the sociologist uh, Irving Goffman called total institutions, um, where your identity is subsumed to uh, the institution. And so agency is exerted in a, in a whole range of ways, from very quiet ones um, to those most um, visible and outright acts. And the next next few questions are a little tough. Um, but how many children lost their lives at Haskell? What were the causes of their deaths? And were were some students able to return home after they passed away? Yeah, it is. It's hard to answer that one for a few different reasons. Um, one, because, um, you know, early record keeping is very spotty. Um, a lot of the records didn't survive. Um we sometimes have to rely almost entirely on institutional records, for instance, the superintendent's reports to uh, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs that were written up annually. Um, and there are references, of course, to the deaths of students. Um, we don't always know how accurate they are. Um, because uh, imagine yourself being in the position of superintendent at a place like Haskell, you're going to want to put the best shine on your record. And um, even if it's out of your immediate control, um, you know, if you lose 10 or a dozen students in a school year, I don't mean lose them like they had just left, but they died, um, you know, that, that reflects poorly. So there may be some cases where um, students were ill and um, they just were shipped home and later died there. Um, we know that um, in the Haskell Cemetery, which is still here on our campus, um, there are, I think, about 109, 110 headstones. Um, most of those are um, from the late 19th century, but they do range all the way up until, I think, the uh, 1940s or 50s um, in, in, in much smaller numbers. Um, but that current location of the graveyard uh, is not where it was originally. So it's very possible that um, some remains um, were uninterred um, or that um, headstones, um, you know, they were no longer able to read the names, perhaps. Um, in fact, some of those um, where they're currently situated um, are unknown. Um, and so it's really hard to answer. Um, just how many um, we can say for a fact those 109 110 but I suspect the number is much much higher um, as to the cause of deaths um, primarily disease um, waves of, of disease uh, worked their way through um, the dormitories um, you know from the beginning and um, to some extent you know that's a function of um, you know just poor conditions um, and the fact that diseases are communicable. Um, some of these deaths, you know, we can attribute to things like, you know, measles or diphtheria or even flu. Um, some may be more uh, difficult to pin down. I mean, I think there's a case to be made that um, sometimes the underlying cause of death and perhaps susceptibility to disease was kind of a, a mental or a spiritual crisis. You know, the, the depression and the homesickness, um, I think very much could, could be said to play a role um, in uh, maybe what um, was eventually put on a death certificate as something else. Um, I don't have a lot of information to provide on the returning home other than what I have said. Um, in some cases, yes, um, ill children may have been sent home um, prior to them either recovering or dying. Um, in other cases, um, bodies may have been returned home and not buried on campus, but that's an area where um, still a lot of research needs to be done. Right. Um can you speak to the impact of the boarding school system history 
upon Native American tribal nations today. Why mm-hmm. does this history matter? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it it matters because it's so um, entrenched in our history and in our experience uh, as Native people uh, with those thousands of students going to uh, you know, tens of thousands, really, going to hundreds of schools um, because there are reservation day schools, there are reservation boarding schools, there are church and religious schools, and there are these off-reservation boarding schools. It becomes essentially part of the American Indian experience from, um, you know, the last uh, you know, part of the 19th century, um, really arguably for about a hundred years. Um, and even older than that in some cases with those denominational schools. So it, it's um, fundamental to what American Indians uh, you know, have gone through. Every native family, every native person, uh, whether they know the stories directly or not, um, have family members who were impacted by this system. Uh, so I think that's why it does matter. And, you know, recovering that history also uh, is part of a larger process of healing and of, um, you know, maybe ultimately reconciliation over all these uh, kinds of um, issues and experiences. Um, the impact um, is something I've, I've kind of already spoken to um, that may range from everything from um, generational trauma uh, to um, cycles of abuse. Um, the schools were um, notorious for um, pretty low standards. Um, not to say there weren't some good teachers or good-hearted people. Um, I don't want to sh- short shrift that, but um, it they were places where a lot of abuse took place. And um, that could range from um physical to mental um spiritual and sexual um it's also as i mentioned um you know very institutional there are no places built in where students are going to receive um signs or clues or instruction in how to be parents because they've been separated from their families. So if you have multiple generations, you know, suffering abuse, suffering depression, um, having um, health effects and experiencing abuse, you know, what happens? Those turn into cycles. People who are abused often become abusers. And so whether it's domestic violence or, um, you know, serial sexual abuse uh, or no matter what it is, where we see those things um, in Native communities, I think at least a good bit of that can be um, centered in, in the boarding school experience. I mentioned also diet, and I think that's one that's been overlooked, um, but that also has an impact upon tribal nations today and many places um, there is still a a reliance on government commodities um, rather than traditional foodstuffs and that feeds into a lot of these health um, crises that we're faced with um, now. Mm -hmm. Going back to forms of agency, uh, could you provide some insight on the impact of sports at boarding schools? You know we've Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of stories about Jim Thorpe Um, Mm -hmm. Billy Mills, even Mm -hmm. um, at boarding schools. So why did the sports teams matter for the so-called friends of the Indian, as well as the students themselves? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, sports arrive and become um, part and parcel um, of the boarding schools um, very early on. Um, And in the earlier days, that really is only for boys or young men. Um, this is a good connection to agency because, for instance, at Carlisle, 
Um, it was the students themselves um, who um, convinced Richard Henry Pratt to allow them to have a football team. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's similar at the other institutions. And of course, part of that is the fact that they are following in Pratt's footsteps. Um, it becomes um, identified with the schools um, also because the Haskell and Carlisle football teams, for instance, are very good. And they are playing against um, colleges and universities um, when um, at a time when those Indian schools are not even high schools. Um, you know, some of the the young men may be high school age or or even college aged in some cases. But um, you know, this is more like a this would be like more of a primary school playing against a university. Um, and they're regularly beating them. You know, Haskell would play against um uh, MU and Notre Dame and Bucknell and, and places like that and, and would be beating them. Um, this for Pratt, at least, and I think for others, you know, closer to home here at Haskell, um, had an a- added benefit for those um, so- so-called self-styled you know, friends of the Indian. Um, Pratt was um, what I often call um, a master of PR, public relations. And so he used things like before and after pictures to demonstrate, you know, to um, crowds that events or speeches he gave or something he's trying to raise funds and things um he could show this is what i can do i can assimilate um indians um make them you know less dangerous more like us whatever the impulses that drive those um motivations to change people um i think he found with football he could do something similar um, he was fond of this phrase of being able to show what an Indian can do. And for people um, in, in the mainstream, there's still a, a lot of prejudice against Indians. Um, this had um, kind of a novel effect of um, getting to see real life Indians, um, but it also in some ways maybe is a bit like a Wild West show um, because it's um, in some ways are, um, a reenactment of what, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 years before was happening on the field of battle. But now it's in a safe space to do that. Um, you know, I don't know how, you know, receptive um, white audiences were to seeing uh, their teams be beat by the Indian um, squads. But um, I think it became, uh, you know, very popular um, entertainment. Uh, and for Pratt and others like him, you know, that's essentially free publicity. So I think it does have the aspect of agency on the part of the students wanting to do it, um, as well as um, continuing to to uh, kind of advertise to the schools and what um, they were setting out to accomplish. And yeah, you know, we've had a a real storied history here at Haskell of, of football, especially, um, particularly in the 1920s and 30s. Um, Jim Thorpe, incidentally, um, came to Haskell first. He was very young when he was here, so he wasn't playing football. He's he's associated with Carlisle, which is where he eventually went and played on their team. Um, but yeah, Billy Mills um, um, and, and a number of others um, who've come through Haskell um, and um, are, are recognized as world-class athletes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I did a research paper this semester on um, the intersections of gender and sports at boarding mm-hmm. schools and even found the story of the Fort Shaw girls basketball team. Right, yeah. Um, that is something that I think not a lot of folks know about, um, mm-hmm. but it's very important history. Um, and I was, I was very pleased to read that book by, I believe it's Ursula Smith and... Mm-hmm. I can't remember the other author to uh, right now, but um, very, very interesting story. Um, yeah. And they, they won a game in the the world's fair on the, on a big stage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting too. I, I think there's a DVD about their story um, that I might have in my regular office, but um, 
the World's Fair, um, just as an aside, thinking about opportunities where school administrators wanted to um, showcase what was going on in the Indian schools um, at the World's um, Columbian Exposition in 1893 in Chicago, the White City, one of the biggest World's Fairs ever. There was a model classroom from Haskell at that World's Fair. And so, again, um, there's, I think, um, a real impulse to show off what the schools are supposed to be doing in a time when there's still very widespread prejudice against Native people and probably a real questioning by many of why is the government paying to do this? Mm -hmm. What should the federal government right now do to appropriately reckon with and address the history of the boarding schools? I need to be very careful here because as a federal employee, right. Um, you know, I, I can't really speak to, you know, what the government should do. Um, you know, I do have personal feelings about that, but what I can tell you is um, to look at what the federal government is doing. And yeah. with, uh, with secretary Deb Holland, our first uh, native um, woman, secretary of the interior, um, her uh, initiative to um, investigate, clarify, make transparent the history of these schools um, is a huge step. Um, and, you know, that's an ongoing process. That's, that's not something that can be done overnight. They have put out a, a quite preliminary report um, that gives a sense of how many of these types of schools existed, um, what took place there, um, but there are, you know, are a number of, of next steps um, to finding out uh, more about the history and the impact uh, of the boarding schools. Um, you know, maybe eventually coming to a place of, of um, you know, a reconciliation process. I can't say, I can't predict the future on that. And as, you know, presidential administrations change, um, you know, sometimes initiatives will fall by the wayside. So I don't know what will happen, but looking at what is happening right now, I'd say that's a very, um, you know, it, it, it's a very positive step and it's a very historic step, certainly. As well. Right. Mm -hmm. What does the process of healing look like for American Indian tribal nations affected by this past? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, again, going to be um, addressed in, in a whole host of ways. Um, part of it is trying to reclaim, uh, revitalize language, um, spiritual and cultural traditions um, could ha be happening um, through things that um, decolonize um, and um, promote the sovereignty of our tribal nations could be in something like food sovereignty. It could be in something like, um, you know, how do we um, bring holistic healing methods to bear in breaking cycles of abuse? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of damage that came out of the boarding schools. Um, even if people um, had their heart in the right place, and I believe many of those so-called friends of the Indians were sincere, but they were so incredibly ethnocentric and biased against Native cultures that they couldn't find anything good in them. And so therefore, um, our nation suffered. And so healing is, uh, I think, going to be a long process. Um, I think it's going to have to, you know, at some point involve some, some forgiveness. Um, but also it's instrumental that we not forget that history. Um, because um, when we do that, um, you know, we, we run the risk of um, just sort of tamping that stuff down. And it, it, it has a way of you know, coming back in places where we maybe don't expect it. You know? So um, I think that, that I can't give you a, a very easy answer for that, but there are a lot of things going on across Indian country that um, whether they are directly being um, 
promoted as a means of healing from the boarding school past um, will go into that process of um, you know greater um, healing and, and wellness overall. Mm-hmm. And my final question for you today is, what's the current status of American Indian education uh, in the United States? You you work at uh, Haskell Indian Nations University, situated on um, the former lands of the boarding school. Mm-hmm. What 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 does the status look like across the country? Um, I, I I myself have a lot of Indigenous peers at KU, mm-hmm. um, and um, I think that that's that's a very important change that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, increase of diversity, of course. Um, but mm. what's the current status uh, uh, nationwide? Yeah, so I mean, it, there. I guess uh, again, a lot of different ways to kind of tease that apart. Um, you have, for instance, um, an, an ongoing federal Indian education system. Um, you know that that has its roots in 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 this. Uh, area that we've been talking about with boarding schools. Um, so the Bureau of Indian um, Affairs oversees the Bureau of Indian Education, and they run a whole system of K through 12 schools across the country, across Indian country. Um, they are also responsible for uh, overseeing um, two universities, ours, Haskell Indian Nations University, and our sister school in Albuquerque. Um, Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute. Um, those are fully federally funded. You must be a member of a federally rec- recognized tribe to attend them. Um, there are, in addition, um, 36 other um, tribal um, colleges and universities uh, across Indian country. Um, those are not federally funded. I mean, they may receive some federal monies, but um, I think the big difference, um, and and of course, you know, I'm biased. I teach at Haskell, but I think the the thing that makes Haskell really unique, well, more than one thing, but one is that it is, as my colleague Dan Wildcat correctly states, the de facto American Indian University, um, because those other 37 tend to um, serve constituencies that um, are more localized or regional, right? You know, so um, maybe they just really are um, mostly populated by one tribal group or a few. Um, some of those um that are outside of the reach of you know being fully federally funded, um, also you know will charge a tuition rate um, that is you know much more than we don't really have tuition. Um, you know this is part and parcel of our our, our agreement between sovereign nations or the trust responsibility that the federal government um, has um, with tribes. Um, that means that if you have to fund, you know, from other streams, uh, it may be open then for non-Indians to attend um, those schools, which is not the case with Haskell. And Haskell is the crossroads because we regularly have a you know, hundred or more tribal nations represented here out of a population of seven to 800 students. And that's an incredible amount of diversity and cultural uh, wealth and knowledge, wisdom. Um, I guess also I would say, you know, clearly there's a huge difference between what Haskell was when it started and what it is now. You know, it began as a place to eradicate, to destroy, to stamp out um, Indian uh, cultures, traditions beliefs, customs, practices, identities. It was um, essentially a form of ethnocide that was being promoted in schools like that. And now, you know, here we are 140 years later and uh, we look very different, you know. We have um, a focus throughout the school on celebrating and 
um, promulgating uh, our tribal heritages and histories and, and beliefs and customs and practices and knowledge and wisdom and all of those things where we are indigenizing the curriculum at every chance that we get. It is a place now of celebration without forgetting that history, of course. Um, and then I guess finally I would say, um, you know, something that would have been very, very uncommon at the time that Haskell opened is um, American Indians are um, in all corners of the education system in the United States, um, whether that be you know, in, in K through 12 schools, primary schools, secondary schools, um, colleges, universities. Um, so I think that's uh, another you know, big difference as well. Um, we have a ways to go, but I think the current status of American Indian education um, looks pretty promising. I mean, as more and more Native people um, earn degrees in higher education, I think it's going to have some big impacts on um, the state of the academy generally. Um, so those are positive things. And um, that, you know, that, that makes me pretty pleased. Um, we, um, we have to learn from the past in order to move past it. And, um, you know, so I think this is a really exciting time of story that, um, you know, we don't forget what happened, um, but we're looking forward, you know, to what's going to happen. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Anderson. This uh -huh. has been enlightening for myself, and I hope it's enlightening for all the listeners out there. Um, thank you so much for your time, and I hope you have a good rest of your day.